evening to Matthew's Gospel in our uh, survey of the Scriptures. Matthew's Gospel, chapter uh, 5 tonight. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and get their attention and they will put a Bible into your hand and it will be marked to our passage this evening. The Sermon on the Mount, as we have uh, seen, teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves not in order to become Christians or in order to merit heaven. No one can merit heaven. But the Sermon on the Mount is given so that we might know how to conduct ourselves as Christians in this world. We're a long way from home. We've sung about that even tonight. Heaven is our home. But how we're to conduct ourselves as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus in a way that properly represents him and represents the kingdom of God. The section of the Sermon on the Mount, I got so close to finishing that one section last week. I closed up the sermon because I was conscious of the time a little bit and uh, realized, oh, I was just one away from the, you have heard it said, but I say unto you illustration. Might have wrapped it up, but uh, that's the way it goes. And in this section, he is calling for us to, as Christians to live a life that is more righteous than uh, the righteous demands of the law and the prophets, to live a life that is more righteous than even the Pharisees. The law of Moses was a wonderful set of laws and is a wonderful set of laws for what it does in bringing people to Christ, but its supreme emphasis is upon our outward actions and how we conduct ourselves outwardly. Well, you know, you can learn the religious game, and a person can learn how to be one thing outwardly, but there's a huge disconnect between what we're presenting ourselves as and what we are on the inside. In order to properly represent Christ and the kingdom of God, those, both of those areas need to be consistent. There needs to be both an outward righteousness and an inward righteousness or rightness. And so this is what he's talking about as we come now to chapter 5, uh, verse 43. Jesus declares, You have heard that it was said, and now he quotes from uh, the Old Testament, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless them who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Every morning that sunrise falls on everybody, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors, who are kind of thought of as the lowest of the low among the Jews and that day. Uh, don't they do the same? They uh, love those who uh, love them. And if you greet your brethren only, what more do you do than others? For don't even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. When he talks about there in verse 43, you've heard it said, quoting the law, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you, 
um, you, I don't, some of you might look at that and say and think to yourself, uh, that's a cool verse. I wish I had uh, learned that a little earlier. Where in the world is that in the Bible that I can uh, love my neighbor but I can hate my enemy? Jesus is actually quoting loosely from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 where the law of Moses said, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, the Jews, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus declares here what, uh, and he confronts what they had been taught as kind of disciples of, of Judaism. And, and he's not saying that this is what the law of, the, of Moses taught. This was an interpretation of the Jewish religious leaders. So when the Jews in the Old Testament, when they studied the scriptures and they saw that commandment, you shall love uh, your neighbor as yourself, that, uh, in other words, I'm to love my neighbor in the same way that I already love myself, they realize that's a very, very demanding uh, commandment. And the religious leaders, when they read that, they got that immediately. So they set out to kind of soften the demands. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they did it the way so often that the rabbis were prone to do it, and that is by limiting the definition of who God is talking about here or referring to as my neighbor. And so they got out their microscopes and their Ronco Bible and their all oh, their everything and and they determined that since the immediate context of that commandment was the children of your people speaking of the Jews, that God was saying that they only needed to love their fellow Jews, and even more narrowly, they only needed to love those who were their immediate family or their closest friends. In other words, the average person, the, the average people that you would have had as a neighbor in those days would have been uh, either close friends or they would have been family members. And they went even further to declare that beyond their family and friends, they were, free, they, they were free not only not to love other Jews as themselves, but only their family members, closest friends, but went so far as to declare that they were free then to hate their enemies uh, and those who had persecuted the Jews, namely the Gentiles. And so this is what they had done in massaging that passage And so Jesus is going to take and correct that. Now, this whole discussion of who is my neighbor, we recognize it from the New Testament. When a man uh, came up to Jesus and began to speak to him about what is the greatest commandment, and Jesus said, "Uh, how do you understand it to be? And he said, well, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and so these are the great commandments. And Jesus said, well, uh, go and, uh, you know, do these things. And then he immediately, he's a young man who's uh, deeply religious and probably steeped in all of this tradition. And he thought to himself, uh, and he spoke to Jesus about, all right, 
have to love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love my neighbor as myself. All right, what is the scope of these commandments? What is the scope of who my neighbor is? And he's kind of, he then poses that question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And see, this is the discussion that was going on among the rabbis and the uh, the Jewish religious leaders. And so Jesus gave him the account. It's not really a parable. It's probably a true story that made the head of the uh, lines of the Jerusalem Post probably recently within Jesus' speaking it about a man who had gone from Jerusalem down into Jericho. He was set upon by uh, 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 thieves and uh, almost beaten to death on top of being relieved of his money and how it was that a priest and then a Levite ultimately walked past him in his uh, broken, uh, uh, beaten-up condition at the side of the road. Uh, They looked at him. One of them investigated him a little bit closer. But then uh, a Samaritan came along, the dreaded Samaritans, uh, part Jew, part Gentile, and the Samaritan comes along and puts the man up on his animal, brings him to the inn, nurses him overnight, and then tells the innkeeper, listen, let him be here, let him recover, and then whatever bill he racks up here, I'll take care of it the next time that I pass through. And then Jesus asked, well, who was neighbor to this man? And, uh, and he couldn't say uh, Samaritan because he, he didn't want even that word to come out of his mouth. And he said, in essence, the man who helped him in Jesus, uh, then in, in essence through that particular story, was defining for us as Christians and defining for the Jewish people how they should understand neighbor. And a neighbor, as he brings out in that account, is someone who is near me in Need. So he blows to smithereens what the Jewish religious leaders had done to that commandment and how they had softened it and made it uh, self-accommodating and um, gave it the, the meaning that the Father intended that uh, to, uh, to have. And uh, so the discussion was a part of all that was going on. Jesus said there in verse 44 that we're to love our neighbors. Now, how easy is that? Uh, we're to bless those who curse us. Um, I don't know. Uh, when people curse me, a blessing is not the first thing uh, that comes into my mind. Uh, we're to do good to those who hate us. We're to pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. So it's, it's quite a collection of commandments that he gives there. Uh, very, very strong. Uh, the love, bless, do good, pray. It's asking a lot. And so when you look at these commandments that he gives, you think, Lord, you are asking a lot of us here. And, of course, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. But we also need a reason for doing this that is bigger than the hesitancy of my flesh or the inclination of my flesh to obey these things. And and so what are the reasons for Uh, doing this and obeying this commandment. And that's what Jesus goes on to in verses 45 um, through uh, 48. And he tells us, first of all, it is the only way by by, um, uh, interacting with people, responding to people in this way, it is the only way that we can represent our Father in heaven because it's what he does every day. When that sun comes up every morning, Whether a person is wicked or godly, uh, God blesses them with that sunshine. 
Well, when the rain falls in the winter, we'd like a little bit more, wouldn't we? But when the rain falls in the winter, it doesn't just fall on the just. That rain falls on the unjust as well. And so this is the only way that you can represent a God who is like that, who shows grace toward the uh, wicked as well as the righteous every single day. And the only way that we can represent him and how he does that year in and year out, day in and day out, is by, uh, in turn, uh, showing patience and grace uh, toward our enemies in the world. He tells us, second, that anybody can live a life in our own flesh of repaying love for love or good for good. That doesn't require anything of us. That's effortless to do. So Jesus wants us to stand out. He wants the whole world to see that Christianity, that is, he does and his Holy Spirit does, produces a superior kind of quality of human being, a supernatural quality of human being. And so in order for us to get noticed and God noticed in us, it requires this kind of a living, this kind of life where people look and go, wow, where in the world does that come? I would have decked him. And, uh, and then we're able to say, no, this is, I'm a part of a different kingdom, and trust me, I would have too. <laughs> Before I came to know the Lord, but the Lord has called me to do something different, and I can't represent God every day by belting everyone uh, who offends me and, uh, and, and uh, curses me. And he tells us that we need to do this in verse 48. Uh, Therefore, uh, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the word perfect means mature. In other words, this is the only way we can properly represent God in, uh, in the world. And, um, and sometimes you can look and say, wow, if I'm going to be treating people in this way, I'm going to pray for those who spitefully use me, and I'm going to love my enemies, I'm going to bless those who curse me, do good to those who hate me. It looks like this is a terrible one-sided thing. It looks like I'm doing all of the giving, and they're doing all of the taking. Not at all. Not at all. In obeying those commandments, we receive infinitely more than the person who receives the benefits from us in obeying those commandments. Because what we receive as we obey those commandments in the power of the Holy Spirit is we are growing in the character of our Heavenly Father. You can never outgive God. Everything we do that we obey here is for our good and for our blessing. He moves on in chapter 6, and he starts to talk about charitable deeds. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to see by, be seen by them. Charitable deeds, in the old King James, it said alms. That was referred to. And uh, I'm glad they made the change in the new King James to go from alms to charitable deeds because it, it refers to good deeds or uh, charitable deeds. We think of alms almost exclusively in terms of money, but it's addressing a lot more than just money here. It's talking about our good deeds that we do to people in the name of the Lord. And he tells us that we are to do charitable deeds. Every Christian that should characterize our life is not whether if we do these, but it is a matter of when we do them. But when we do them, we're not to do them out of a motive of being seen by other people. There is something, I don't know, um, I'll, just, I'll just have you stand in a moment. Um, 
There is something, even in us as Christians, there's this, we've got two natures in us, don't we? We've got the old sin nature, the old self-nature, and we've got this new nature of God. And there is something within us when we do something good, at least in some of us, where we want to do the good, but we wouldn't mind if people noticed a little bit too. I mean, if you're, you know... Who's going to toot your horn if you don't tooteth your own horn? Or however the old saying goes, right? So I'm going to do a good deed. And the inclination can be, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and slip this person $50. I could do that privately, but I could do it at the dinner table at Thanksgiving time while everybody's watching. Or make sure that somehow other people know. And so there's this kind of griminess that can, you know, begin to taint all of this. So he warns, don't do your charitable deeds um, uh, before men in order to be seen by them. Sometimes we have to do things where a good deed is going to be seen by other people, but we're not doing it for that purpose. He said, otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, if I do a charitable deed for a person and I do it under the motivation of being seen and recognized, and then I am seen and recognized, then Jesus says, you got your reward. You did it for that reason, then that's the reward that you get. Don't expect anything in eternity while they clapped for you and oohed and awed, and they <gasps> absorb all of that. The shock and the awe at the generosity of your gift or whatever it is that you did for a person because you did it out of that motive, you received what you wanted, and then, but there won't be any reward for it at all. He said, therefore, because of this, when you do your charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, we don't know necessarily that the religious leaders of Jesus' time were blowing a trumpet every single time that they did a good work. Um, I wouldn't put it past them, but we don't really know historically that they did. There is the um, sanctified speculation that, uh, that probably this originated in the fact that there was a place in the temple where money would be put in receptacles, that that money would then be given to the poor. And so the idea is that when someone would come, then to put money into uh, those receptacles, that a horn would be blown, not to draw attention to the giver, but to let the poor know there was resources now to be handed out to them. And you can imagine it wouldn't take much time before, uh, forget about the poor, I'm going to put some money in here so somebody can toot the horn and everybody will notice that I've done that. But whatever the origin of it, the idea isn't that we're going to draw attention to ourselves in helping other people. If we do it for that motivation, then we'll receive the reward of man's recognition, but nothing more. So Jesus said, when you do do for us as Christians a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, do it so secretly that even you don't know that you did it. Hey, look over there. And then then just do it right over there. Put some lipstick on there and a little face and everything. But the idea is you do something, and then the first thought is, 
Well, I think I'm pretty special. What can I say? And the, and the idea is that when that when I do that kind of thing, and I think about my if my thought goes if, if whether the first thought or the tenth thought was that was really something to do for that person, to be to to, to keep it secret from myself. You don't even know that you did it. Stop it. Let's move on to the next thing. And and it's, it's very wise. Listen, does Jesus know us or what? He really does. One day in heaven, we won't have to deal with these things, but uh, even here. Uh, those things can come into the mix. Other, why, otherwise, would he be ad- addressing all of this? So when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And so God says, do it, and where nobody else knows, I will see it. There's nothing, no charitable deed that we do that is kept a secret from God. He says, I will notice it and I will reward you openly. Now, sometimes people have a problem and they'll think, they think to themselves, well, I don't want to do anything good or a charitable deed for somebody else um, because I'm not really interested in a a reward or anything like that in terms of eternity. I just want to do, uh, you know, they think somehow it's carnal to think about being rewarded by God for doing a charitable deed. And yet God promises the reward here. So I I just want to let you know, if you're too spiritual uh, to be rewarded for doing a charitable deed, I'll take it. Just tell him, take that blessing. I'm not afraid to be blessed by God. And give it to me. No, the Lord wants to bless us. Again, you can't outgive God. And then he moves on to the subject of prayer here. And he declares concerning prayer. He said, and when you pray, uh, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. The religious leaders, there would be these times of prayer for the Jewish religious leaders. And apparently some of them loved nothing more than to be in a very public place at that time of prayer. Stop immediately. There they are at the cash register or on the street corner, whatever it might be, and, and immediately begin to engage in prayer. And then everybody would look and say, what a deeply spiritual human being. The whole idea is doing these kind of things in order to be thought of as spiritual by other people. And uh, so this is the kind of thing that they would do. And, and so much of, the, of it then is, you know, if I'm not going to pray because I believe in the effectiveness of prayer for other people and I don't really care about whether people know that it was an answer to my prayer that this person was blessed or healed or whatever it might be, then pretty soon prayer can become something where it's like, okay, this is an activity that God has given to us where we um, prove that we're spiritual or not in front of other people. And that's kind of what it had turned into. And the Lord says, if prayer goes up out of that kind uh, of a motivation, then uh, he says that uh, then uh, that person has their reward. But when you pray, us as Christians go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So... We are not to uh, pray in public 
out out of a desire to be seen or deemed spiritual as a result of the prayer. It doesn't mean that we can't pray publicly. It just means that it cannot be, um, the motivation can't be to be seen. Um, I pray publicly on a regular basis as a part of this calling, um, but I don't pray uh, to be seen. You pray publicly probably in some environments as well, and, uh, but we don't do it to be seen. We do it to pray in that particular environment. I'm, in this whole thing of praying in order to be thought spiritual, I always think about D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist of, uh, you know, 150 years ago or something in the United States, one of the greatest evangelists in American history. And he would go around much the same way Billy Graham has done in more recent times, and he would hold these crusades. And Greg Laurie has to uh, do much the same thing, come into a city and then meet with the various pastors and try and see if there's support for a crusade within a community. Are the churches going to get behind it? Are they going to use it or not for the kingdom of God and for evangelism? And then sometimes when those crusades are being put together, um, the uh, different uh, parts of the crusade are given over to various kind of prominent pastors within the community. So maybe one of them is going to open in prayer at one uh, point in one, on one night, and then somebody else is going to maybe pray for the offering on that night, and so forth through the nights. And this, sometimes this is in play, and, uh, and sometimes that position will be given to somebody and it kind of goes to their head. D.L. Moody was, uh, was in the middle of a campaign once, and the evangelistic campaign, and the music had gone on, and then a guy got up to pray. It was his point to pray, and he was going on and on and on. This was his moment to shine, and he's just going on and on, and D.L. Moody uh, realized this guy is killing the meeting. So while he was praying, he stood up and he said, while our brother is finishing his prayer, let's turn in our Bibles too, and he began to move right on into the rest of the meeting. I'll tell you, if that happened to you, you wouldn't forget that very quickly. But he realized this wasn't a prayer about uh, the meeting. This was a prayer about my opportunity to shine. And this is one of the, you know, pitfalls of, of, um, of you know, Christianity as well and religion and all. And, and we're, again, all of us can fall prey to it or at least be tempted related to that. And so Jesus speaks uh, about this. And so when we pray, we're to go into our room. Every Christian should have a place of private prayer as a part of our lives. None of us should have our, our, where the entirety of our prayer life is being expressed in public settings. The reason is, is that Christianity is a relationship with God, and prayer is communication in that relationship. So it's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. God wants to speak back to us as we're praying. His peace, bring a scripture to our remembrance, maybe a song to our remembrance to sing to Him. He is very engaged in prayer, and we want to get in a private place, shut the door where He is our only um, uh, object of our attention so that all of that can happen. And, uh, and, and, and then to engage in prayer related to the needs of our own life, the lives of others. And so we go into that secret place and uh, we lift our prayers up to the Lord and our Father. We're told your Father at the end of verse 6, who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, 
Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. And so um, in heathen religion or pagan religion, a lot of times uh, the prayers are just a vain repetition. So, you know, when we pray as Christians, it's very relational. It's very extemporaneous. We're just talking with God. God, we ask you to do this, and we think you're wonderful, and we bless you, and we praise you, and it isn't something that's written out. And so we just talk to him uh, in prayer, but we've got a relationship with God. Uh, those that are involved in pagan uh, and idol worship, they don't have a relationship with the true and the living God. So they feel compelled to wake up their gods. Remember when uh, the prophets of Baal uh, with, uh, with uh, Elijah in the Old Testament, and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out to God, you know, from morning until the evening sacrifice and all. They're trying to wake their God up. Uh, our God is very, very attentive. He already uh, he's very attentive to our prayers. And so there would be this repetition that would be used. He said, when you pray, don't use vain repetitions the way that the heathens do. And so there, there shouldn't be vain repetitions saying the same prayer over and over and over again mindlessly. Very important, though, to recognize that he's not condemning repetition. He is condemning vain repetition empty repetition, mindless repetition, uh, meaningless repetition. I've, probably most of us in this room have been in some kind of a situation where we have repeated a prayer over and over and over again. Nothing wrong with where you get some kind of news or somebody comes to you and says, this just happened in my life and it's something that's very, very hard and you go, oh... Jesus, 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 Jesus. I mean, there's power in his name. And you're repeating it, but it's not an empty repetition. It's a real repetition and and, uh, meaningful. Or help them, Jesus. Help them, Jesus. Help them, Jesus. Jesus, help them. Help them, Jesus. And I mean, when you get news the way that it can come in the world, it's about all you can say sometimes in the face of something. Nothing wrong with that. Never feel that he's condemning that. And so as long as the prayer is sincere, that's the deal. The idea is if I think that by the, the idea that we've got to fight against, even as Christians, is that the longer our prayer is, the better our prayer is in the eyes of God. It isn't. What's most important to God is sincerity in prayer, not length of prayer. Remember when Peter started to walk on the water and then he began to sink, didn't he? And he cried out to the Lord. He said, save me, Lord, didn't he? Save me, Lord. You call that a prayer? That's three words. Well, if God only responds to long prayers, he's not going to respond to Peter. He responded to it. It was a sincere prayer. It was perfect for the moment. And Jesus rescued him uh, from the water. I was just recently on the East Coast um, Pastors Conference, and um, Pancho Juarez was teaching one of the sessions and, um, from Montebello down in uh, Calvary Chapel in Southern California. And uh, he was talking a little bit about prayer, and he was talking about his wife, who was diagnosed with b- brain cancer. Um, uh, quite a number of years ago, and it's a long, you know, beautiful story of what the Lord has done. And, uh, and he talked about the, the illustration of coming to Chuck 
And when, you know, when she was diagnosed and said, Chuck, my wife is just diagnosed with brain cancer. Would you pray for her? And Chuck said, yes, of course I will pray for you. And he said that Chuck, uh, you know, took, uh, took him or his hand or something like that and said, Lord, what are a few uh, cancerous brain cells to you? We just ask that you would heal in this situation. In Jesus' name, amen. And he thought to himself, that's no kind of a prayer for brain cancer. You can't pray a prayer like that for brain cancer. You can't be done in a sentence and a half. I mean, you've got to huff and puff and blow the house down. And sometimes you'll experience it in your own life. You'll pray for somebody over some kind of a big thing. And, you know, when, when you hit those kind of prayer requests, I'm always asking, Lord, lead me in what I'm supposed to pray here. Sometimes it's very short. Sometimes it's a lot longer. And so this idea that we have to fight against, though, that the longer it... And so prayer becomes works, doesn't it? I'm proving myself spiritually. I'm proving myself to be truly spiritual, truly serious about this particular thing that I'm praying about if I pray a long prayer. The Lord is much more interested in sincerity. He said, for they, speaking of the pagan, they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Anytime that we're praying to the Lord and uh, lifting up our prayers uh, to Him, there's no need to really over-inform Him about uh, what it is that we're we're lifting up to Him. He he understands uh, uh, what we're going to pray before uh, we we pray it to Him. And this whole uh, verse 8 here is an encouragement of the fact that He is eager to hear our prayers and he, He even hears the prayer that we don't pray and he is going to bless us and uh, we need to have that confidence that he hears uh, he hears our prayers and then he moves on and he begins to uh, having given us some kind of prayer pointers here he then moves on and he teaches us moving from how to pray to then moving to what to pray and we looked at this uh, not today uh, this morning but a week ago uh, today in the Sunday morning message, so I'm not going to go into great deal cons- uh, of detail concerning it. But Jesus said to the disciples, in this manner, therefore pray. And so we see in this manner, we recognize it's a model prayer. It is a pattern prayer, uh, something that we are to use as a pattern for our own prayer lives to the Lord each day. And so here is the model that he gives. He says, Our Father in heaven. And I want you to know, because not everybody is here on the Sunday mornings, but I want you to at least uh, everybody to recognize that all the way through this prayer, the uh, personal pronouns are plural. They are not uh, singular. So there's no I, me, my anywhere in the prayer. It's all our, it's all we, it's all us through the prayer. And, and because as we pray this prayer, we pray not only for ourselves, but we're praying for the rest of this church body. We're praying for Christians around the United States and all around the world. We are interceding not only on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of others as well. I can't tell you what it means to me when, <clears throat> when uh, I uh, pray related to this, and our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so forth. And I am, I am, I am praying in communion with you. 
with you. With the Lord first, obviously, but with you. Oh, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And I'm thinking about you. Oh, Lord, they're all over the place. They're all over Modesto and all over the surrounding regions. And some of them have commuted into the Bay Area. Really help them, you know. And they're scattered all over. Oh, Lord, give us in its intercession for you. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, give us victory today. Be powerful in our lives today. And we're interceding for one another. It's one of those powerful aspects of the prayer. And so he says, in this manner pray. And he lists seven things here that every one of us have a need to pray to God on a daily basis. Your prayer, your prayer list can be far more than this, far larger than this. But these seven things we have a need to uh, be current with God on, on a daily basis. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so it begins uh, really with our Father in heaven. Here's the reminder that we've been born again into a family complete with a heavenly Father. And that we're not alone in this world. We have a Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And this speaks of worship being directed up uh, to the Lord and allowing him to lift up our heads off of our immediate circumstances and uh, as we worship him and praise him. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here is this reminder that Jesus is coming back soon and it might be today. Never does us any harm to be reminded of that. Give us this day our daily bread. Here is the confession on a daily basis. It's more than just saying, Lord, would you supply us with our food today? Though it is saying that, but it's a daily acknowledgement of the fact that, God, I recognize you as my provider. I don't care how much money I have in the bank. I don't care how much food is in the cupboard. I don't care how much gas is in the gas tank. I choose not to depend upon those things or to look at those things as the things that sustain me. You are my security. You are my provider. And boy, we need to, uh, we don't need to necessarily remind him of it. He already knows that. The idea is that we would be reminded of it on a daily basis. God, you are my security. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so entering into the day freshly forgiven by God, freshly forgiving other people, not carrying the baggage of yesterday or last week or last year into, uh, into the today of, uh, that we're heading into. And, do, and lead us not, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so the morning begins with that preparation and uh, being strengthened for the coming temptation that we're going to face that day, the spiritual warfare they're going to face that day, and then uh, closing with this uh, um, uh, declaration to God, this proclamation concerning him that he is able to keep all of the uh, things that we have prayed to him, more than able to answer every prayer that we lift up to him. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then interestingly enough, as kind of an addendum to that prayer, Jesus takes up all the things that he could pull out of that Lord's Prayer, as it's called, all of the things that he could have taken and chosen to elaborate on, he elaborates on the subject of forgiveness. It's fascinating. 
He said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. Wow. That's a heavy thing. It's interesting when we read the Bible, if, if Jesus and the Father are intolerant of one thing in their children and in their disciples, the one thing they're intolerant of is a lack of forgiveness on our part toward others. How in the world can I represent the God that we know and love as Christians, the God of the Bible, how can I represent him before the world if I am unforgiving? If he is anything to us, he is a forgiver. And so that is the one thing that he just will not accept, allowing us to settle into in our lives as Christians. Now, when he closes with this warning on the subject of forgiveness, it can't refer to our salvation because our salvation isn't earned or maintained on the basis of any works, including uh, extending forgiveness or not. And so even something as important as forgiveness is, it can't be that Jesus is saying this is putting our salvation in jeopardy in some way. You can choose to disagree with me on this, but as I've wrestled with this kind of through the years, this is where I've landed a little bit on it. It, it would seem that Jesus is declaring in obviously very, very sober terms that unforgiveness of others in the light of how much he has forgiven us is very, very serious business to him. And he's saying it in the strongest way so that we will not be guilty of it as his children. Now, why would he say it so strongly except that there is the potential for us even having read it in his book tonight, studied it together, elaborated on it at some length at this point, and the ability for maybe half of us to walk out of this room at the end of the service, go through those doors, and still have unforgiveness in our heart toward any number of people. It's just like we don't take this seriously in the way that he wants us to take it seriously. We grow very accustomed to holding on to the wrongs that have done to us, nursing those things, remembering those things, and, uh, and not putting them finally to rest and the importance of getting through. So it's a capacity that all of us have, and so the strength of what it is that he's saying. And I think that Jesus is communicating that just as a lack of our forgiveness toward another person creates a strain in the relationship, it creates a disturbance and distance in the relationship, if we fail to forgive, then it creates a strain and a distance in our relationship with the Lord. And so it's important, something to look at. We'll stop there tonight and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. The interesting thing about the partaking of the Lord's Supper, and these are